You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to an authority briefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected authority briefings. So we are joined today by Phyllis Birnbaum, who is a novelist, biographer, journalist, and translator. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Times Literary Supplement, and other publications. Her books include Modern Girls, Shining Stars, The Skies of Tokyo, Five Japanese Women, and a biography, Glory in a Line, A Life of Fujita, The Artist Caught Between East and West. She recently edited an English translation of Clouds Above the Hill, a historical novel of the Russo-Japanese War. Her newest book, and the reason we're talking to her today, is called Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army. Phyllis, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. So often on SpyCast, we, we discuss the difficulties of writing books about intelligence. Sometimes you have classification issues, or your subject lived in the shadows, or there's some kind of act of disinformation about someone. This book might take the case as one of the most problematic. I read it from cover to cover, and I still don't know what is true and what is a complete fabrication. I think you have to think of Kawashima Yoshiko uh, as you would a, a dream. There, there are things about a dream which are obviously true based on facts, and you can get the outline from there. But then there are other things that are vaguer and are made up. That's the story that I was trying to tell, a kind of dreamlike sequence of events. Sometimes they're based on facts, and sometimes they're based on her own fabrications, her own fairy tale stories about her own life. But I think you can get a kernel of what she was actually like through all these fantasy elements and factual elements. That's what I was trying to create. Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about your protagonist. Who, who is Kawashima Yoshiko? Kawashima Yoshiko was born in 1907. She was a princess of the Manchu, the last dynasty of, of China, the Qing dynasty. She was born just before the dynasty fell in 19, 1911. And she was, after that, sent to Japan for political reasons by her father, because her father had dreams of reviving the Qing dynasty. And the person she sent uh, Yoshiko to in Japan was also politically involved with, with establishing a Japanese presence 
Manchuria, bringing back the dynasty and establishing a presence in northeast China. So she grew up in Japan, though she was a Manchu, a Chinese, uh, born in China. She spoke Japanese, and uh, she had a kind of miserable childhood since she had been so dislocated at an early age. There were rumors that her adoptive father had raped her. And for whatever the reason, in, in, uh, when she was around, when she was in a teenager, she cut off all her hair and declared that she was going to now be a man. So she dressed like a man and in men's clothing was quite a notorious figure in Japanese newspapers and also in China. She uh, started to say that she was going to bring back the Qing dynasty. And so she moved between China and Japan, sometimes wearing men's clothing, sometimes wearing a man's military uniform. She was uh, rumored, she was, she claimed, and there is evidence that she uh, led an army to help the Japanese establish this new Qing dynasty in northwest, uh, northeast China. So she was quite a uh, flamboyant figure with many, many questions about what, what she actually did and what was her publicity hungry self talking about herself. But she was, even uh, without all the decorations, quite a flamboyant, notable figure. When I first picked up the book, I, I thought I had never heard of her, uh, but I realized very quickly that this is the st her story is somewhat told in a, in a very famous movie, The Last Emperor, and there are a lot of classic stories about her. There, there are books uh, written like The Beauty in Men's Clothing and Princess Jin, The Joan of Arc of the Orient, and even her own autobiography is something that a lot of people know well, certainly in Asia. Uh, but in many of these, like your book to a degree you're talking about, are, are full of lies or total fabrications or maybe even based on some very specific political agendas. In many cases, the dr dramatization of her life has become somewhat the reality of her life. Can you talk a little bit about what people have written about her or, or what kind of dramatizations about her life have been done in the past? Yes. Um, on top of the fact that Yoshiko herself was a great mythmaker about herself, in 1933, a fairly well-known Japanese author wrote a book about her called The Beauty in Men's Clothing. And this book made Yoshiko the heroine. It was based on Yoshiko's life, but it was supposed to be a novel. And the heroine of this novel, according to the author, was courageous, beautiful, glamorous, principled. She was a spy. She was a taxi dancer. She was also the savior of her people. Now, some of, this, some of the things written in this book were correct. But some of them were utter fictional uh, imaginings of the author and also of Yoshiko, who helped the author. But she took this story unto herself and sort of lived her life as if she were that woman. But actually, she was quite a much weaker woman than that, much more troubled. But the public started to believe that this novel was really about her life. And this myth took over. And in fact, after the war, when she was on trial for her life as a traitor to China, the judges themselves took this novel as, uh, as evidence against her, and she was executed because of it. So this novel is really problematic for a person like myself who's uh, writing about her. Well, yeah, as a historian myself, just looking at source material and, and you know, the reason she's executed, and we just gave away the ending of the book, but really the beginning of the book in many cases, you structure it in such a way that uh, you, you have no doubt about what happens to her, but uh, the reason that her life turns out the way that it is is because of a novel uh, that is very much full of fabrication and lies, and it, it ends up 
you know, coming back to, to hurt her significantly at the end of her life. Yes, and there were other, there were other things that, that, not only this novel, but once she got writing on this novel, she appeared for newspaper interviews. The newspapers themselves, and the Japanese government and the Japanese military, it was in their own interest to promote this view of this former Manchu princess who was on their side, who was helping them build a nation in, uh, in Manchuria. But actually, she, she uh, was not very uh, modest in any way, so she contributed to her downfall. It was in the interest of the Japanese government to have this woman on her side, because they wanted the public to believe that they were bringing light and freedom to North, Northeast China. And look, here they have this Manchu princess herself backing them and helping them. But they promoted that myth also. Well, what you just said was, is actually alluding to my next question. I think when I read this book, I realized that it would be very interesting for anyone looking at the geopolitics of the Second World War, or even the 30s leading up to the Second World War. But that's, this is really what's at the heart of this story, this geopolitical rivalry between China, Mongolia, Manchuria, and Japan that eventually leads to the Pacific War in World War II. And she's right in the middle of all of this. I mean, you tell the story about... Uh, 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 the puppet of the Japanese. You know, help, help me with pronunciation. Is it Puyi? Puyi? A puppet of the Japanese, and there's a Japanese covert action getting in the north, and, and the potential fake or real assassination attempts that uh, get him to, to flee to the north, all part of a broader Japanese plan. Yes. Puyi was, the, of course, the star of Bertolucci's film, The Last Emperor. He had led a very sequestered life, and he had no interest in emperor anymore, so he was very willing, though in his later autobiography after, after the war, he claims that he was duped. He really was quite willing to become a pawn of the Japanese and be set up once again as an emperor in northeast China. He, he was very uh, much a part of the propaganda machine that the Japanese were setting up in Manchuria because they needed a figurehead, and he was, he was it. And Yoshiko contributed to this she claimed, by uh, taking his wife, who was reluctant to go to northeast China because she kind of recognized that there would be dangers once they were under the influence of the Japanese. But Yoshiko swept in, convinced the Empress that she really had to go and join her husband in northeast China, and claimed that she did this by stuffing the poor Empress and her dog into her car trunk. <laughs> And that, that's one of the, the couple of stories that, you know, lead to her at least self-proclaiming as a spy and at least allow us to kind of move down that path and belief uh, that she was part of a, some kind of espionage operation. The broader story I want to ask you about is the story of her relationship with Tanaka Ryukichi. Is that close? Yes. Yes. Um, who was a Japanese general and potentially a lover of Yoshiko for years. Uh, according to your book, or at least according to legend, he's the one that really started utilizing her as a spy and taught her what she, what she later learned to be, to be used in espionage. Can you talk a little bit about this relationship? Yes. Tanaka Yukichi was himself uh, supposedly a very gifted, uh, person very gifted in strategy for the Japanese army. He also seems to have been mad as a hatter and had many mental problems, and one of his obsessions was Yoshiko. And he groomed her, he claims, in his autobiography, uh, in a biography written by his son, I'm sorry, that uh, he groomed her to be a spy, recognized her, her traits, and, and uh, he claims 
and she participated in what is now known as the Shanghai Incident, that is in 1932. We have to think about what the Japanese ambitions were at that time. They not only wanted to take over Manchuria, they wanted to spread out and take over China itself. And one of the key places was Shanghai. And they wanted to build up anti-Japanese sentiment among the Chinese so that they would have an excuse to invade, to protect their citizens who, had, who were living there. And that's what they did. And what they did was, according to Tanaka, was they, three or four Japanese monks were riding down, walking down the street one day and causing a commotion. And there was a lot of anti-Japanese feeling in Shanghai at the time. And so, and according to Tanaka, Yoshiko arranged for some Japanese, for some, sorry, for some Chinese thugs to attack these Japanese um, priests who were walking down the street, and thereby causing a great commotion. There were, there were revenge attacks for this, there was a lot of hullabaloo in Shanghai, but this gave the Jap Japanese the excuse they wanted to jump into Shanghai to so-called, do what they said was to protect their citizens. And Tanaka seems to implicate Yoshiko directly in, in this intrigue. And it seems to me to be the one episode that you could really make a case that she was involved in it. And she was kind of a pro, uh, provocateur of this whole uh, terrible uh, fight that broke out in Shanghai. Many, many people were killed. Yeah, the Japanese eventually triumphed, but they had a big fight on their hands. And this is, this is what we see as a classic false flag operation where... Uh, you know, you, you create this kind of uprising, you manufacture this uprising in order to create some kind of justification for invasion. Um, you also write in the book that during the operation itself, she possibly infiltrated a Chinese military installation and collected intelligence. And this is what led her to be known as the Matahari of the East. This is what uh, Tanaka writes about her after, after the war, that she used all her skills going into, first of all, going in, as you say, getting secrets from China, uh, the Chinese military. I think uh, also she, he said that she got uh, information from Sun Yat-sen's son, Sun Fo, but these, these claims are very hard to corroborate, and by that time, Tanaka had gotten carried away with himself, wanting to show what, uh, what a brilliant spy she was. I'm not sure that we can, we can give her credit for that. But she was running around Shanghai uh, trying to uh, make herself as useful as possible. I think, I think you could say that. But, you know, she was a well-known figure. She was very she dressed, uh, as I said, in men's clothes. She was hardly one to go undercover. Yeah. So it's hard to believe that she could do a million things without being seen, that she could really hide so easily because she, wasn't, she didn't have that kind of personality. So I think the only thing that we can definitely, not definitely, that I think is make a strong case for is this uh, conflagration that started with the, the murder of the monk. Yeah, I mean, someone that recognizable and someone that you talk about, her language skills were so poor. It's not a really great combination for a spy. Right, as you know, a spy needs to be able to melt into the population, and she could do, there were many reasons why she couldn't do that. Well, let me ask you about the Commander Jin story, because in the title of the book, if you remember the talk about the spy who commanded her own army. And this is, the, this is this story where she apparently led an army against bandits who were really were insurgents, were people fighting against Japanese rule. 
what what is the legitimacy of this story? And what, the broader question is, did the Japanese even need her help? Well, uh, I think that she did lead a band of very ragtag um, Manchu soldiers because uh, there is a Japanese newspaper reporter who visited her as, as she was uh, receiving their fealty. So I think she did lead a band of soldiers. It was uh, during a, uh, a fight when the Japanese were trying to expand out of the nation state they had created in Manchuria. And they were trying to take over bordering territory. Now, I think they say she was wounded. It, it, it seems to me likely that she did do this let a ragtag band somehow in this battle of in this battle of north in the north in the north. But the Japanese really didn't need her help. They should have because they were fighting in very rugged terrain in very cold conditions and the Chinese presumably knew the terrain better than they. But Edgar Snow, who was around um, who was around in that area at that time, said it was the worst defeat since the Crusades. The Japanese just walked in with very little opposition. Much of the army, it was also an opium-growing area, and the warlords in charge of the opposition were totally stoned and didn't know what was going on. So while Yoshiko, yes, probably had a little army that she led, uh, I don't think the Japanese considered her crucial, crucial to their uh, enterprise. And, and this is one of the episodes in your book that I found incredibly fascinating, almost comical, where... This should be a, a, a territory, if you, you know, we, we have a term we call geospatial intelligence, kind of understanding terrain, understanding the, the battlefield. And looking at that from a purely geospatial perspective, the Japanese should have had real difficulties in taking this territory. But the fact that the, the, the opposition was so terrible, uh, you almost feel sorry uh, for the Chinese. They're just, they're, they're, they can't organize anything. They should have had the perfect place to mount some kind of opposition to the Japanese, and it just falls apart because of just sheer incompetence. Right, right. And, and the people of the Western, there were Western reporters, as I said, Edgar Snow is one of them, they were utterly disgusted because they were really on the side of the Chinese. And, you know, the Japanese just, they, they sped across those frozen mountain trails. That's what he, that's what he writes. So, yes, they were at a tremendous disadvantage, and in spite of that, because of their discipline and ambition, they succeeded. Now, you write in the book that Yoshiko, at least according to legend, uh, had to, to deal with several assassination attempts on her life. That both, both the Japanese uh, wanted her dead, or at least allegedly wanted her dead at a certain point because she became too outspoken, and the Chinese as well, uh, because she was a China, Chinese citizen or Chinese birth working for the Japanese. Can you talk a little about the veracity of these claims? Yes, I think uh, it's true that uh, they did try and assassinate her. We have, uh, evidence, we have testimony from various people. What happened was now the Japanese army had created a great star. She was on the cover of their uh, newspapers dressed in her military attire, speaking about how wonderful was this land that the Japanese had created in Manchuria. And it is possible that she really did believe that this would benefit uh, the people of the people of Northeast China. But at last, she realized that the Japanese were after more than just bringing freedom and light to Manchuria, and uh, were in fact killing people, just slaughtering people, and doing terrible things there. And it is at that time that she started giving talks around Japan, uh, in crit really criticizing the Japanese. And since she was very popular or had a kind of following, she was very influential. 
And uh, so they decided that they would have to kill her. But unfortunately, they couldn't get anyone. I know at least two people that they asked, and they couldn't get people. One of them was her former boyfriend, and he just couldn't bring himself to kill her. So they sequestered her in Fukuoka, Japan, and uh, kept her under close watch. And she, she herself uh, started to become sort of ill. Some people said that she herself was addicted to opium. And so gradually her voice was softer, and she, I mean, her influence was less, and she was less of a threat to the Japanese. The Chinese uh, patriots were, of course, disgusted with what she was doing, and there were threats against her life in China. And after the, after the war, she was quickly uh, arrested by Chiang Kai-shek's regime and, and yeah, and I want to ask you about that execution, because her fate is interesting. Um, people who did far worse than she did, even if you believe every story, people who did far worse than she did were spared. I mean, you give a great example here of Okamura Yoshiji, uh, who was a commander-in-chief of Japanese forces. This is the guy who ran the Japanese army, becomes the military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek. And then you have a woman who, again, even if you assume every story is true, did very little in the broader scheme of things, but she finds her way to be executed. And talk a little bit about why this was her uh, her sentence. Yes, is, you have to really think about the situation in China in 1945 when the, when the what we call the First World Second World War was over. Japan was in chaos. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek had lost his best soldiers to the Japanese, and he still had a fight on his hands fighting the communists who were taking over land. His, his regime was incredibly corrupt. People were starving. There was, um, there was just total chaos in China at that time. And people were very discontent with his regime. So what he did was he had, I guess, what we would call show trials. And uh, Yoshiko was the perfect person for that because she had been so demonized by the Chinese media. And she was the perfect person for them to bring to trial, make a big deal of, and say, look, we are, you know, weeding out all these terrible, terrible people. When actually she was just a small fry uh, compared to the others who, some of them went free, some of them uh, went on to even continue ruling parts of China because the Chiang Kai-shek was so unable to control what was going on in the whole country because he was so distracted. There is... Uh urban legend, certainly, that her execution was faked. Uh, there, there are stories that she was seen as late as the late 1970s. Can you talk a little bit about this, uh, well, let's, let's call it an urban legend. Yes. Uh, almost as soon as she was executed, the rumors started that actually she had not been executed. And the reason for this is that at the time of her execution, only two Western reporters were allowed to get to witness it, and they couldn't have identified her. The Chinese reporters were kept out for whatever reason government had. And so it immediately, uh, her brother also contributed to the notion that he had paid someone to send in a sister to uh, die in her place and that Yoshiko had run off, had gone off somewhere and was free somewhere. But she has never turned, she never turned up. We have no actual um, sighting of her except by these people who keep on turning up and saying, oh yes, she taught me Japanese, she taught me poetry. I met, um, but these have never really been proven. And in fact, the number of these uh, sightings has increased as the years have passed. I myself, when I was in China, I met two men who had just a ton of documentation. All this. But it doesn't seem to me that uh, any of it is very credible. And you have to wonder about the motives of these people. 
So what we can say is, uh, it is said that she died in 1948, and no one, she has never uh, made a public appearance since then. So I would go with those who say that she really died that day. Well, maybe she's running around with Elvis somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so my, my final question to you is, you know, a book of history, it's a wonderful book of history, but I think it actually does have some interesting uh, connections to modern geopolitics. I mean, there's current issues happening between China and Japan today. And in fact, all of Asia is uh, in a very, you know, interesting, maybe the wrong words, it could blow up and be very scary in the future. But there's, there's some rehashing of old World War II tensions. Uh, do you see this uh, book or her story as potentially being used today as propaganda on either side? Well, it is used as propaganda by the Chinese who uh, still try to use her as a demon. And just last year, there was a uh, documentary about her showing what an evil woman she was. It's, uh, and these documentaries come out in China fairly frequently. She is a way of stirring up, when it's convenient for the Chinese government, I believe, she's a way of stirring up anti-Japanese and uh, she still, uh, her family would like her to be exonerated because they don't believe that she really did anything. But she's a convenient, flamboyant, very flashy figure uh, for the Chinese. I wanted to say one more thing which may answer your question or not, but which is for me a very interesting recent sidelight about her life, which is that uh, Yukawa Karuna, uh, who was recently uh, assassinated, uh, decapitated, by ISIS, hmm. claimed to be a reincarnation of Yoshiko. <laughs> he uh, took a, his name is rather feminine sounding, and he, he wrote in his blog that he was, uh, he, he was the same as she was. He was trying to uh, improve the lot of uh, the people and doing good uh, for others, and he went to his death claiming to be Kawashima Yoshiko incarnated. Yeah, I'm, I'm now going to be on the lookout for, for stories about her. I mean, I do pay a lot of attention to what's happening in Asia today. Uh, certainly the Japanese are having conversations about moving away from a self-defense force and rearming. And so see if she pops up more and more often from the Chinese side. So, Philip, uh, Phyllis, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Phyllis Birnbaum, again, is the author of Manchu Princess Japanese Spy, the story of Kamashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.